What is surprising to me is that the world kind of swallowed the story hook, line and sinker and almost every news item that you that you read after that accused the you know the so-called right-wing extremists of precipitating a, a, a war of Hamas. Hello, I'm Jonathan Tobin, editor-in-chief of the Jewish News Syndicate, JNS.org, and you're listening to Top Story, a weekly podcast where I analyze the most important stories happening in Jewish news around the world. Each week, I will break down politics, foreign policy, and culture to provide insights into what is going on behind the headlines. Hello, and welcome to Top Story. It turns out that The Atlantic magazine did a better job explaining the problem of disinformation than even those planning its recent conference on the subject held at the University of Chicago could have hoped. The magazine modestly described the event, titled Disinformation and the Erosion of Democracy, as groundbreaking, and in one sense it was. It was hosted by an institution that is one of the pillars of the liberal Washington establishment and had a list of speakers that was filled with well-known talking heads regularly seen on CNN and MSNBC, as well as published in outlets like the New York Times and, of course, The Atlantic. It was a nonstop compendium of conventional wisdom that put forward the notion that the problem of misleading and false information about important subjects all came from conservatives and their media outlets. Some on the right, including former President Donald Trump, are certainly not always truthful. But there was nothing groundbreaking about a collection of liberal elites telling each other that their political foes are terrible people who believe bad things and cynically peddle lies to their ignorant followers. What was important about it was that when confronted by a student reporter with examples of how those present at the conference were themselves a primary source of disinformation, the response of the presenters did more to illustrate how the spread of such falsehoods endangers democracy than anything said or written on the subject in recent memory. Their hypocrisy has provoked a great deal of partisan score-settling, a lot of which centers around the epic lying that was done by the legacy corporate media and their Silicon Valley allies during the last weeks of the 2020 presidential campaign. If Americans think their views about this subject should be determined by, solely by partisan affiliations or opinions about President Joe Biden or Trump, they're wrong. The willingness of both the political and media divisions of the Washington establishment to spread lies also goes to the heart of the misrepresentation of other issues and stories, including those that affect both the security of the state of Israel and the spread of anti-Semitism. The Atlantic Conference became notorious because University of Chicago students were able to ask some of the speakers about examples of disinformation that they had spread themselves. One in particular was the Washington Post's Ann Applebaum, a once respectable journalist who nevertheless asserted that an October 2020 New York Post scoop with revelations about the corrupt business activities and influence peddling of Hunter Biden was Russian disinformation. At the time, like other members of the liberal establishment that circled the wagons around the campaign of Hunter's father, Applebaum believed that nothing was more important than defeating Trump's bid for re-election. The scandal was ignored outside of conservative outlets. 
Social media companies censored and shut down the accounts of the Post and others who sought to publicize it. This matters because now that the details about the infamous Biden laptop and the emails on it have been belatedly declared genuine by both the New York Times and the Washington Post, and the claims about Russian involvement that were attested to by dozens of fervently anti-Trump former intelligence officials, debunked. Yet, those who lied about it have still not been held accountable. To the contrary, Applebaum's response to the student's question was to simply declare herself uninterested in something that she claims is irrelevant. The rest of the conference's speakers held to the same line, with Atlantic editor Jeffrey Goldberg even summoning up the chutzpah to declare criticism of the hypocrisy on display at the event to also be disinformation. But to focus only on him or Applebaum is a mistake. The keynote speaker of the conference, former President Barack Obama, is an even more egregious example of double standards about disinformation. Though widely treated like a secular saint, Obama was, after all, the person who repeatedly fibbed about those who used his signature health care plan being able to keep their doctors if they liked it. Just as important, he and the rest of his administration also continuously dissembled about the Iran nuclear deal. His utterly false claims about the agreement preventing Iran from getting a nuclear weapon and being enforceable were dutifully reported as facts by a mainstream press that even a member of his own White House staff dismissed as a media echo chamber. To this day, you can read accounts of the issue in outlets like the Times and the Washington Post without once encountering key facts about the pact allowing Iran to keep all of its advanced nuclear facilities and research, or that it actually expires by the end of this decade. The key knowledge that the deal didn't just enrich and empower the world's leading state sponsor of international terrorism, but that it also guaranteed that Tehran would achieve its ambition to be a nuclear power, is missing from Obama's self-congratulatory comments and almost all of the media's stories about the subject. In his remarks at the conference, Obama defined disinformation as, quote, a systematic effort to either promote false information, to suppress true information, for the purpose of political gain, financial gain, enhancing power, suppressing others, targeting those you don't like, unquote. Somehow, it never occurred to the former president that it was an apt characterization of his own approach to public policy, as well as of his key media allies and big tech friends. It's equally true of much of mainstream media coverage of Israel. Unfair and misleading coverage of the Middle East is often the product of ignorance on the part of reporters and editors. But anti-Israel bias is also motivated in large measure by intersectional ideology that holds the Jewish state to be a privileged oppressor in addition to more traditional anti-Semitic tropes. That is a good way to understand why issues like the complicated property dispute in the Nahalat Shimon or Sheikh Jarrah section of Jerusalem are portrayed in such a one-sided manner, in which Jewish rights and history are simply ignored, and a blatantly false Palestinian-Arab narrative about victimhood is accepted at face value. 
Mainstream media outlets repeated such Palestinian propaganda about Jerusalem as a justification for Hamas firing thousands of missiles at Israel last May. That same misinformation was used as an excuse for anti-Semitic incitement heard in Congress, as well as for violence against Jews in the streets of American as well as European cities. But apologies from media outlets on that score are just as scarce as those about silencing the Hunter Biden story. The same is also true for mainstream media accounts of the recent series of terrorist attacks in Israel. They are invariably attributed to the lack of a Palestinian state without ever acknowledging that the Palestinians have repeatedly rejected a two-state solution and that their claims about Jerusalem and the holy sites are blatant lies and denial of Jewish history. The point here is that the same people who lied about Hunter Biden and before that about Trump colluding with Russia in the 2016 election and the Iran nuclear deal are the same trusted figures that many rely on to tell them the truth about the attempt to revive the pact and about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. No news source should be consumed uncritically. Still, if there is anything we should have learned in the last few years, it is that when legacy media use the word disinformation, it's often merely shorthand for political speech they don't like or stories that make their preferred candidates or policy prescriptions look bad. Too often, it is better applied to what the same people crying foul about the spread of disinformation are themselves reporting. That is something that is destroying the mainstream media's credibility and eroding democracy. It's also making the world a more dangerous place for the one Jewish state on the planet and providing fuel for a rising tide of anti-Semitism. And now to our interview of the week. How much of what we assume to be true about the world is actually false? The topic of disinformation is deeply controversial, but there is little doubt that much of what a lot of people think is true about a host of different topics are actually lies that are spread by those with a political axe to grind or some other ulterior motive. While that can be said about the coverage of American political issues and the coronavirus pandemic, it's equally true of accounts of those relating to the conflict between Jews and Arabs over the land of Israel and Jerusalem. Indeed, the problem is not so much what journalists and their audiences don't know about these topics, as it is about what they think is true is itself being the product of disinformation masquerading as news reporting or objective fact checks. Time and again, mainstream outlets that routinely complain about misinformation emanating from those who dissent from liberal orthodoxy are themselves the purveyors of falsehoods that are presented as conventional wisdom or widely accepted facts. That is exactly what happened in the spring of 2021 when a distorted narrative about a Jerusalem property dispute or Arab lies about Jewish history or access to holy places was taken at face value in order to justify first Hamas terrorism and then anti-Israel incitement that in turn led to anti-Semitic violence on the streets of European and American cities. It's necessary to get past the lies and find out what's really going on in Jerusalem and why it matters to Israel, 
To do that, we're fortunate to have with us today someone who was at the forefront of the dispute over homes in what is routinely referred to in the media as an Arab neighborhood or as an effort to evict innocent Palestinians from their homes, but which might accurately be described as an effort to restore historic Jewish rights. Chaim Silberstein is founder and chairman of KeepJerusalem.org, a Jerusalem public policy group, as well as of the Jerusalem Development Fund, which is dedicated to land reclamation in Israel's capital city. In that capacity, he's been in the middle of the controversy over ownership of homes in Shemot HaTzedek, or the Sheikh Jarrah section of that city. He's been a senior advisor to the Israel Minister of Tourism and an advisor to the Deputy Minister of Defense. Born in South Africa, he made Aliyah at the age of 20, served as a combat medic in the Israel Defense Forces, and subsequently worked in the real estate and high-tech sectors, and lives in Beit El. Chaim Silberstein, welcome to Top Story. Hi there, Jonathan, and thanks very much for having me. Uh, I appreciate you and I appreciate your uh, wonderful website and news service, JNS. Well, thanks so much. We're really happy to have you with us. Um, let's start by going back um, to May 2021, when, as far as most of the international news media was concerned, a bunch of extremist Jews was victimizing Palestinians and, you know, embodying a uh, supposedly unjust Israeli occupation of Israel- Arab land and what they referred to solely as Sheikh Jarrah. But what was really happening in that Jerusalem neighborhood that was used as a pretext for terrorist violence and really a, a war? Uh, tell us what, what happened and how that happened, how that all came to be about. Well, the first thing I want to say, Jonathan, is that it, what is surprising to me is that the world kind of swallowed the story hook, line, and sinker. And almost every news item that you, that you read after that accused the, you know, the so-called right-wing extremists of precipitating a, a, a war of Hamas, which, which you know, it wasn't surprising that Hamas used it as an excuse. Uh, but it was surprising, as I said, that, uh, that many of the so-called mainstream media uh, accepted it and ran with that narrative. But the true story uh, behind what's happening in uh, the Shimon Atzadik neighborhood and the Nachalat Shimon neighborhood is that we're talking about two Jewish neighborhoods that were established over 130 years ago when there was nothing outside the, the walls of Jerusalem, very, very little, uh, you know, people living, very few people living there. And the, the Jews of Jerusalem were poor and had nowhere to live and had very little food to eat. People don't really know this side of the of the history of Jerusalem over a hundred years ago. And two of the chief rabbis of Jerusalem, the Ashkenazi and Sfadi rabbi, went on a fundraising mission and raised money from um, England and other places, I think 800 pounds, and purchased uh, two neighborhoods, uh, four, uh, uh, sorry, uh, two, uh, 17 dunams, which is just over four acres, uh, which mm-hmm. ultimately became known as the Shimon Atzadik neighborhood because it was located around the tomb of Simon the Just, Shimon Atzadik. And uh, houses were built there uh, for the Ashkenazi and for the Sfadi families who were poor and had nowhere to live. And those families lived there until 1948. And an additional neighborhood right next door called Nachalat Shimon, the heritage of Simon, uh, was also purchased and uh, over 70 or 80 Jewish families lived there. So these were two Jewish neighborhoods that existed 
prior to the war of 1948. Uh, as many of your viewers might know, from 1948 to 1967, the Jordanians illegally occupied Eastern Jerusalem as they did the rest of Judea and Samaria, the so-called West Bank. And in the war of 1967, the Six-Day War, Israel liberated those areas from the Jordanians. And the Jews began to try and reclaim their properties, their homes, that the Jordanians had illegally occupied and had moved in so-called refugees, Arab squatters who just took over Jewish homes without paying rent, built illegally, and certainly did not allow the original Jewish uh, owners to return to their homes. So that's yeah, the background. Uh, yeah, and just tell us a little bit. I mean, just as we're getting into the weeds of this story, and it's necessary because we have to know what happened. Why did the Jews flee from their homes in the, in this area? What what happened to precipitate their flight, and how did they happen to lose them in this way? You know, the whole world today, Jonathan, is talking about Russian massacres in Ukraine. Uh, Russia did not invent massacres. And uh, in 1948, uh, a few ambulances with nurses and doctors and patients, Jewish uh, nurses and doctors and patients, were driving up a road right adjacent to these two Jewish neighborhoods on the way to the Hadassah Hospital on Mount Scopus. And Arab terrorists viciously attacked and destroyed this convoy and murdered 78 nurses, doctors and patients uh, ruthlessly and mercilessly. And this happened on the 6th of April 1948 before the War of Independence started. And so you can imagine what kind of atmosphere uh, was felt in, the, in that vicinity. And the British came to the Jewish families in those two neighborhoods and said to them, we will not protect you. You have to flee now, otherwise you also will be massacred. So those families left under the threat of, of murder and massacre to the extent they so feared their lives that these religious families, many of them, fled on Shabbat, on the Sabbath, and moved over to the western part of the city. So that's the background. Those Jews were basically evicted and fled from their, for their lives. And, uh, and then after the war, uh, their homes were occupied. During which the Jordanians occupied that part Correct. of Jerusalem. Right. Uh, right. During their siege of Jerusalem, where, you know, and it was where the ceasefire lines were that divided the city for 19 years. That's correct. So the Jordanians occupied eastern Jerusalem, as I mentioned, and Judea and Samaria for those 19 years. And no Jews were allowed anywhere in those areas that the Jordanians occupied, not to their synagogues, not to the holy sites, not to the Western Wall, and certainly not to their homes. In fact, the Jordanians destroyed every synagogue in the old city, 58 of them. They, they destroyed uh, thousands of tombstones on the Mount of Olives, which is also part of Eastern Jerusalem. And they took over dozens of Jewish homes, and especially here in these two neighborhoods, Nachalat Shimon and Shimon Atzadik. Okay, that, that takes us through, and then, as, in, as you say, in 1967, Israel comes back, you know, Jewish life returns um, to um, the rest of the country there. Um, and in theory, Jewish rights can be protected again. But that's not exactly what happened, was it? Correct. Well, for many years, the, uh, the Jewish families who owned these properties, um, by and large, were poor and were trying to remake their lives and, and just, uh, you know, move on. And so nothing much was done. Uh, in some cases, the Jews managed to get some rent from the Arab tenants, 
But in most cases, the Arabs just lived in their homes, did not pay rent, um, built illegally on their Jewish properties. And this, this situation continued for many years. I personally got involved in 1998 uh, when I, at the time, I was active in Eastern Jerusalem and working with Rabbi Benny Elon, who eventually became a member of Knesset and the Minister of Tourism in the Israeli government. And we started, we discovered this neighborhood, uh, Shimon Tzadik. Uh, we saw the Arabs were living in Jewish homes and they were in fact trying to destroy a synagogue in Shimon Tzadik that Rabbi Ovadi Yosef had had his bar mitzvah in in 1933. And when I saw that happening, I said, we have to do something about it. And I put together an investment group. I'm now skipping forward five years. It took me five years to do this whole thing together with a few other people. But we put together investment groups and they purchased the rights to these properties, both in Shimon Tzadik and in Nachalat Shimon, where there were many, many dozens of owners. We are still in the process of buying up the rights to those properties to move in Jewish families. So in, in the process of moving in Jewish families and reclaiming the Jewish rights to homes that were originally and legally lawfully owned by Jews, part of that process is to challenge the Arab tenants' legal standing in these properties. And they have two major or two possible options. The one is they are protected tenants and the other is they're non-protected tenants. If they're protected tenants, it means that the Jordanian government gave them a, a, a contract and it's very difficult to evict them. They kind of can stay there with what's called key money till for one or two generations. If they're non-protected tenants, then you can evict them because they are illegally living in your house. And so this is, these are legal processes that we've been going through for a couple of decades already. And uh, the fact that we and some of my colleagues were very close to evicting some of the illegal Arab tenants from some of the properties, this is what uh, gave Hamas an excuse to, to inflame the whole of the area, claiming that Jews were stealing uh, Palestinian land in East Jerusalem. Yeah, I mean, you've, you've given us a little bit about how, your, your, how you got involved and what exactly your role in the litigation of this controversy was. But when you began this effort, which I guess you say in 2003, so that's 19 years ago, um, what was the reaction from, you know, other Jews in Jerusalem? Um, you know, as you say, um, you, know, you know, you didn't even know before, before you, you, you stumbled upon this knowledge about Jewish life in that area. You know, I, I've, I had read books about, you know, what had happened in 1948, and almost none of them mentioned that Jews actually lived around the area where that, the Hadassah convoy was massacred. Correct. I must say to my chagrin, Jonathan, that even today, most Jews who even live in Jerusalem are unaware of the realities that are happening and of Jews that are living in this area. In fact, I've taken many VIPs, um, uh, members of Knesset, members of parliament from around the world, and they, they have no knowledge of these realities. And in fact, my organization, Keep Jerusalem, that's very much of what we do. We, we educate and we, we inform um, both VIPs as well as you know, regular tourists and citizens of Israel about what's going on in these areas and generally the geopolitical situation of Jerusalem. And uh, particularly in these neighborhoods, uh, I'm involved both in the legal and, and acquisition processes as, as well as the public diplomacy process of 
of, of doing the public relations and the, what they call Hasbara to, to try and present the truthful narrative. You know, you spoke earlier about how Hamas used this as an excuse, as a pretext. And yes, this false and, and, and deceitful narrative has been accepted all over the world, even in Israel. And this is part of our battle for the, in the courtrooms of the mind. Yeah, well, that, that leads me to my next question, because to the extent that this issue is covered, um, we're constantly being told by, you know, sort of the international media, uh, even much of the Israeli media, that the problem in this neighborhood is caused by settlers or an attempt to disrupt uh, the uneasy status quo in Jerusalem or the country in general. And that, you know, why would giving these ho- up these homes to, over to the squatters or giving up on any others to, uh, efforts to reclaim Jewish property? It's like, what are they, what are you trying to accomplish? Well, you know, would letting things stand as they were, giving up your efforts, do you think this would bring the country closer to peace? Would it make Jerusalem safer? Um, because that's a, a lot of what, you know, you, you read about this. That's what everybody assumes. Well, Jonathan, I think that one needs to look at this on, on two levels. There's the individual level, the individual real estate dispute level, and doing justice in bringing back stolen property to its rightful owners. And that's what we call reclamation of land. And this is a process that's been going on for decades, and we continue to do it. And it's interesting how all the liberal and you know leftist media who always claim that they the moral people and the, you know the moral conscience of the world they're the exact opposite they couldn't give a hoot about the the legal rights of the owners if they are jewish and mm-hmm. but they do care about the illegal uh, non-rights of the arab mm-hmm. uh, tenants and this is their so-called moral battle which which obviously is uh, is uh, is highly flawed um, so that's one level but we cannot ignore the other level, and this is true, and that is it's a national struggle. It's a struggle for the sovereignty over Jerusalem. And every centimeter, Jonathan, that either the Arabs gain or the Jews gain is a perceived victory or defeat in the battle for Jerusalem. And, and therefore, for us who were involved in the land reclamation, for us who are involved in, involved in putting through the, the truthful narrative for Jerusalem, this battle is a very important battle because when we succeed in ev- evicting Arabs who are illegally squatting in Jewish land, it's a personal victory to bring justice and law and order back to this neighborhood and to its rightful owners. But it's also another victory in establishing and asserting Jewish and Israeli sovereignty all over United Jerusalem. Yeah, I think that gets right to the heart of the issue. And um I think um, those who, who you know haven't been there or, or don't really you know or, or don't um, understand um, you know what exactly is involved. Um, you know, you and I walked um, in this. You know, you showed me this area when I was in Jerusalem in February, and um, I think what people don't get are two main facts. One is that this. Um, this area is right in the heart of Jerusalem. You know, we're literally a stone's throw from where, you know, there are public buildings, you know, sort of state offices. Um, it's just, you know, you're you're like a block away from Route 1, which kind of takes you right through the heart of Jerusalem that everybody's been on if you visited Jerusalem. Um, 
And there's another point, is that when you go there and that some of the, um, the Arabs who live in the area, you know, um, their, their response to the presence of Jews is to say, this is Palestine. You know, I, I, that's exactly what they, what they said. Um, you know, that it's not Jerusalem, that it's not part of Israel, that Jews have no rights to even be walking around there. Um, you know, that is, um, that's the reality that I think many of those commenting or just taking a casual look at it don't get. Absolutely. I'll tell you just a, a personal story that happened to me. Um, when we first moved into the Shimonat Tzadik uh, neighborhood and the synagogue that Rabbi Ovadia Yosef had his bar mitzvah in mm-hmm. um, nearly 100 years ago, uh, at, we moved in in the middle of the night uh, because we didn't want any violence and the property had been purchased by Jews or rep- you know, purchased from Jews by Jews. Don't forget the original owners were Jews, but the investment group purchased it from the original owners in order to activate this property. And it was in the middle of the night and we came from, uh, we brought guys in from a yeshiva in Jerusalem and uh, it was, and we had no electricity and we had an extension cord and we just went, uh, not me personally, but some of the guys knocked on the door of one of the Arab neighborhoods, neighbors, right next door, the synagogue. And they knocked on the door and they said to him, uh, would it be possible to plug this in and get some electricity for you, from you? And he said, you know, Ken, yes. And then he said an amazing sentence, which was just, uh, just encapsulates ca- uh, what the story is. He said, I always thought that the tzaddik, Shimon, would return. I always thought that Simon the Just would return. And he was alluding to the fact that that neighborhood is, surrounds the tomb of Shimon the tzaddik, of Simon the Just. And he acknowledged that this and who is, is for those of our, our 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 listeners and you know and viewers who don't know the history who was who was this historic figure who is who Simon the, there? There are very few people uh, two that I can think of in the Bible that are, are are known as a tzaddik as as a just person. The one was Joseph, you know, one of the sons of Jacob, mm. and the other one much later on was this Shimon, the Simon Shimon a tzaddik, who lived in the time of the Second Temple period. He was a high priest for 40 years, and he um, had amazing achievements. One of them was persuading Alexander the Great not to destroy Jerusalem. Uh, The story behind that is amazing. I don't know if we have time to tell it. But Simon the Just was a a high priest. He was the head of the Sanhedrin, the legal body in the time of the Second Temple. He was a Tana, one of the earliest scholars that wrote the Talmud. And uh, he was a famous man, and he is buried right in that neighborhood. And that's why the fact that the Arabs uh, call this a Palestinian neighborhood is ridiculous. And unfortunately, most of the world knows Shimon Atadik neighborhood as Sheikh Jarrah, which is right. in fact a Arab neighborhood next door, the neighborhood of Shimon Atadik, which, as as you know, has uh, was a Jewish neighborhood for over 130 years. So. That, that's an important thing to know that uh, the original Arabs, you know, 20, uh, 25 years ago, acknowledged the Jewish ownership, acknowledged the Jewish presence there, knew that the Jews would return. The, but the Arabs today, after the intervention of Fatah, of Hamas, of the Muslim Brotherhood, of Faisal Husseini, and all these uh, inciters and haters of Israel, 
from the outside, they've changed, completely changed the narrative and they forced this, uh, this vicious, hostile narrative on the tenants and the residents of that neighborhood. And that's what you hear today. Yeah. Um, now, some argue on, you know, on the other side that and even within Israel, that since um, Arabs who fled Israel in 1948 aren't a- allowed to reclaim homes that they lost at that time, that it's somehow unjust for Jews who also lost their homes because of the war in 1948 to, to be given the right to reclaim their homes. Now, I would answer that the claim, you know, that there is, of course, that Israel is the only country in that region where Jews can live, and that Jewish owners of properties in Muslim countries from which they were forced to flee, in frankly even greater numbers than those uh, of the Palestinians, um, they have no such right of return. But still, that's the argument that we hear, um, even in Israel, that pushing for you know Jewish rights even in a traditional Jewish neighborhood like this where the his history is so clear is somehow unjust um, what's your answer to that Jonathan it's interesting that you bring that up because just uh, recently I was I was interviewed by Al Jazeera TV and that's exactly their their argument right because what mm-hmm. happens is the people see that they've lost the legal battle right? It's clear. Mm-hmm. The Supreme Court and the other courts have upheld the Jewish ownership of these, the individual Jewish ownership of these properties, right? So they, they, they're still trying. They're still appealing to the courts. They're still holding it up, right? They're doing everything they can to prevent the eviction of these uh, illegal Arab tenants in this neighborhood. Um, so what they res- resort to is this uh, 1948 uh, affair, Right. And Mm -hmm. let's understand it. And I'll give you a very simple analogy to understand what this uh, story is about. For me, the analogy is a a person who comes, a, a, a killer who comes and stabs somebody in the heart and kills them. And in another scenario, a, a, a surgeon, a heart surgeon who's doing an operation on, uh, you know, on a, on a patient and, and unfortunately that patient dies. And in both cases, the media come out and say, "These are look at the murderer. Look at that guy that, that murdered the, the person in, in the operating room. That's what I feel when people call these Jews stealing Palestinian land and, and, or, and, and not giving back the land to the Arabs. And for me, you cannot compare both situations. We are looking at a situation, as I mentioned earlier, that the Jews of Shimon Atzadik and Nachalat Shimon were violently evicted, many of them killed, even raped, and and the fear of of God putting them that they had to flee for their very lives, and they are real refugees from their homes, right? And that's what happened to the Jews of those neighborhoods in 1948, right? The Arabs, on the other hand, and anybody who studies this, and I'm doing a research on it at the moment, the vast majority of the Arabs that left their homes in 1948 did not leave them out of fear, did not leave them because the Jews were about to kill them, did not leave them because they were refugees. They left them willingly because Khajamin al Husseini and other Arab leaders said to them and encouraged them and said to them, hey guys, leave your homes now, come over to our side, and while we are going to destroy Israel, we're going to obliterate them, we're going to massacre them, and we don't want you in the way. And when we finish doing the job, are um, similar to what Russia is trying to do in Ukraine now. When we finish that job, 
then you can go back unhurt and take over the Jewish homes too. So how can one compare between Jews who left, fled, were killed, murdered, raped, and left their homes uh, uh, um, under uh, duress, and Arabs who left their homes willingly to join the enemy, and in many cases fought against the enemy, the Jewish, uh, the fledgling Jewish state in 1948. So the Israeli government passed a law and said, those Arabs that fought against us and that joined the enemy will forfeit their rights and their homes. And therefore, one cannot compare between Jews leaving their homes and Arabs leaving their homes in 1948. Yeah, two completely different circumstances. I guess the question is, I mean, you, you, you talked about how you know, you didn't get involved until the last, until really in the last 20 years or so. Uh, yet this legal dispute has gone on even longer than that. Uh, why has it taken so long for this, um, I'm, you know, <laughs> the wheels of justice grind slowly in all democracies. Um, it's, true, it's as true of the United States as it is in Israel. Um, but why is it taking so long uh, for the Jewish, Jews, uh, Jewish property owners to reclaim their rights? What has been the role of the Israeli courts in prolonging this argument? Well, you say the wheels of justice grind slowly. In Israeli court system, they not only grind slowly, but they actually in re- they go in reverse. So <laughs> until we get it to move forward, that, that also takes a decade or two. So the, the first problem is the bureaucracy and the, and the slow processes that are going through the courts are interminable, Jonathan. And we, I have been in courts personally uh, representing investors and owners for more than 20 years. And uh, uh, the Arab lawyers are very um, sophisticated, uh, many of them employed even by the Palestinian Authority. Um, there's a lawyer by the name of Muhammad Dakhla, who's well known, who represents the Palestinian Authority and has taken on many cases for these uh, illegal tenants. And he knows the Israeli legal system better than most Israeli lawyers do. And he knows how to slow things down, how to go into reverse, how to do one action that can hold a court case up for a full year or more. And so that's one area of, uh, uh, that's holding everything up and slowing everything down and preventing uh, the legal owners from getting a just uh, uh, result. The other reason is that the uh, judges of the Supreme Court, by and large, are on the far left of the political spectrum. And we just saw it very recently in some of the decisions that they have been given. And these uh, uh, justices do what I call legal acrobatics to try and to find any way to prevent the Jews from legally evicting the, the legal tenants. Even though they know that these Arabs are living there illegally, they've, if they protected, by and large, they've violated the protected tenants' rights and should lose them, right? And you just see the uh, decisions of the Supreme Court and some of the lower courts in Israel just show an incredible sense of, of hypocrisy and of one-sidedness and of bias by Supreme Court judges who are supposed to be uh, only look at the law, only look at, at what the, the, the legal book says and act accordingly. And you see they are bringing in personal and political uh, dimensions to their decisions. And, and that is quite uh, a reasonable to, to, for us to therefore understand why the legal process is taking slow, so slowly. And certainly another reason is that they want to kick the can down the road because in many cases they realize 
that the Jews are, have their rights. And once they rule for the rights of the Jews, they fear that that's going to cause some kind of unrest or revolt or whatever. And so they pass it down the road. Yeah, I think it's it's an interesting dilemma, and it's 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 a dynamic that applies to so many things. It's it's kind of the same reason why the United States and other you know uh, international uh, governments refuse to recognize you know Jerusalem as uh, Israel's capital, even though it was the obvious fact because they feared violence or something like that. And you know, in the end, that was proved that was proven false when the United States finally did recognize uh, Jerusalem, uh, there was no explosion around the Arab world. Um, yet that's still part of the the mindset for uh, believing that um, restoring property rights in this one, you know, in these two neighborhoods will somehow burn the whole city down. But th there's another angle to this that you need to explain to us. Um, there have been, you know, a, you know, offers to the squatters in, in, in this case of very generous uh, terms of, you know, very generous agreements could have allowed them to either stay in place if they, they you know, accepted paid rent or just if they left and were, were given basically, you know, the ability to live somewhere else. But the Arab families didn't accept that. Um, why did they, why have they consistently refused any effort at compromise, even though they really don't have a legal leg to stand on? Well, Jonathan, first of all, to me, I'm not a legal expert, but the, these offers of the Supreme Court, in my opinion, are outrageous. They're simply mm -hmm. political decisions that have infiltrated into Israel's highest uh, courts. And it's no surprise that so many of us in Israel are uh, uh, cynical at best of the, of the justice system. Um, but I know I have on my research team and, and a few Arabists, uh, people who are experts in Arab affairs. One of them is Baruch Yadid, who's the Arab uh, affairs commentator for Channel 14 TV. And he did some uh, sniffing around in the neighborhood for us when all of this was going on. And he came back to me and he said to me, Chaim, these guys are willing to accept the, uh, the, co the so-called compromise, right? By the way, to me, it wasn't a compromise at all, but a capitulation of the courts. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, he said to me, these Arab families are willing to accept the compromise because they know it's the best deal that they could get. But Hamas and Fatah and the Muslim Brotherhood and Tahrir and all these uh, Arab and Islamic organizations are using these families as pawns in the battle mm -hmm. for the sovereignty over Jerusalem. And that's why these families have no choice, in a sense, to reject uh, the so-called compromise. Yeah, I mean, in a, in a very real way, it's kind of a microcosm of what happened to Palestinian refugees everywhere, isn't it? <clears throat> because um, there could have, you know, Palestinian refugees from 1948, whose descendants, you know, uh, are now still claiming refugee status. Um, they could have been resettled elsewhere. They could have gotten compensation. There could have been any number of, you know, uh, ways in which that, that part of the, the dispute could have been settled, but they were kept in place to be a, you know, a prop, to be a cudgel, to be used against Israel and the Jews. And it's kind of the same thing happening with these families, isn't it? Absolutely. I remember I, I moved to Israel. I met Aliyah in 1980, 42 years ago. And I remember in the early 80s, Israel built, literally built a new town 
for Arab refugees, so-called Palestinian refugees, next to the city of Shechem. And I remember Yasser Arafat threatened with death any Arab families that would move out of their refugee camps and into this luxurious new town that Israel built for them for free. So yes, but and you can see now also here, um, those original families that we negotiated with 20 years ago in 1998, we managed to uh, evict, or not to ev even evict, to relocate some of the Arab families in Shimon Tzadik in those early years who accepted compensation from us, even though they weren't legal uh, tenants there. But we just said to them, you leave, we'll pay you, and we're going to move in Jewish families. And those original families left willingly and peacefully. But once the political uh, uh, and terrorist elements got wind of what's going on and realized that they could use this as a leverage for their own political and terrorist agendas, so uh, the families began to refuse and, and go to courts and higher courts and find ways to delegitimize and to demonize the Israeli uh, tenants and the legal owners of these properties. Yeah, I am. I think another question about this, I mean, we've mentioned the role of the courts, but what is the role of the Israeli government, um, either the past Israeli government or the current Israeli government? Um, have they been allies in the defense of Jewish rights in Jerusalem or have um, both the Netanyahu government and the current Bennett-Lapid government, have they been more interested in just making this dispute go away regardless of the justice of uh, the cause that you've been trying to represent? All of them, Jonathan, are dead scared of the Supreme Court and of the the uh, prosecutor's office in Jerusalem because the, the de facto Prime Minister of Israel is the, is the Attorney General. And as you know, if you follow what's going on in legal terms with Netanyahu's court case and others that are going on, they just fear what the, what the Attorney General and the prosecutor's office would say and they just don't want to get involved. And, and therefore they leave it up to the courts and the Supreme Courts and it's very rare that you'll see a, a government official intervening what he should or she should be doing to protect Jewish rights and to make political statements and, and policy regarding these areas. Because after all, as I mentioned, it is a battle for the sovereignty of Israel over all parts of Jerusalem, including Eastern Jerusalem, which is part of a united Jerusalem. And yet we find that government uh, members and members of Knesset shy away. And that's part of the work that my organization, Keep Jerusalem, does, is to bring these people to these areas and to show them what's going on and to, to cajole them, to get them to be, get involved and to, to you know, become involved and say uh, to the media and in the Knesset what needs to be said about protecting Jewish rights. Where does the city of Jerusalem stand? Is it the same... Is it the same dynamic with, um, you know, the government of uh, the entire country or do, has the, the municipality been at all helpful? Well, th that's a good question because there are two areas that the municipality can be helpful. The one is in enforcement against illegal building and um, illegal uh, tenancy. And in this case, I would give them a grade of about minus three. Uh, in general, the enforcement against illegal building in all of Eastern Jerusalem by the City Hall is atrocious. This is another, another research that I'm involved with in my organization. And just to, you know, just to give the viewers an idea, there are over 25,000 illegally built Arab units in Eastern Jerusalem. 
And the ones in Shimon HaTzadik and uh, Nachalat Shimon are no different. And many times we have complained and lodged formal complaints to the city hall and with photographs and evidence of illegal structures and illegal buildings. Some of them were very fresh. And unfortunately, the city hall's uh, level of enforcement is minimal at best. Just to give you one example, uh, when I interviewed the head of the enforcement depart department in the city hall, I asked him how many uh, supervisors, uh, inspectors, how many inspectors against illegal building do you have in Western Jerusalem? You know, where 99% of Western Jerusalem is, live Jews, right? And mm -hmm. he said to me, 49. And I asked him, and how many do you have in the Arab areas of Eastern Jerusalem where 350,000 Arabs live? And he said to me, seven. So that just kind of shows you the level of, of differential uh, enforcement we're seeing. Uh, so that's on the level of enforcement, which is, as I said, leaves a lot to be uh, desired. Uh, on the other hand, with, when it comes to building permits and when it comes to helping to uh, do planning in that area, I do perceive a, a level of collaboration, cooperation, because the building committee in the city hall uh, in Jerusalem is made up of the different factions and by and large, the factions of the city hall are center-right who support the kinds of things that we do. And so therefore, uh, we do find a positive approach. I will say, though, that the mayor of Jerusalem, Moshe Leon, who I like and is a good guy, uh, intentionally does not get involved with regular national politics. And he shies away from that and tries to stick with municipal things. Having said that, he does support the kinds of things that we do there. Mm. Now, where does it all stand now and, and, and in terms of the legal case and the political implications? And what's the next step for KeepJerusalem.org and, and for the Jewish owners of this property? Well, there are two major cases that are still open in Shimon HaTzadik and Nachalat Shimon. The one is the Salem family, where uh, the grandson of Rabbi Ovadia Yosef, Yohonatan Yosef, is the legal owner of this property. The Salem family and Arab family have been living illegally in his property for decades and the courts have ruled for their eviction. And every time we try and carry out that eviction, uh, the courts and the police find another reason and another excuse not to carry it out. Their latest excuse was that it's now Ramadan and therefore it's too dangerous and could be too inflammatory to do it. And therefore it should be delayed for another month until after Ramadan. We actually agreed we're not looking specifically to inflame the uh, environment. So we are willing to wait until the end of Ramadan. But we insist that the eviction takes place and that Yohanatan can rightfully take his property back. The other property in Shimon Atzadik, again, the, the court has kicked the can down the road and has said that the properties in which these four Arab families live has not been duly registered properly in the Tabu, the Israeli land registry. And therefore, they're not going to make any decision, even though it's proven that the Jews own the properties. They have legal rights to those properties. But the court has found another excuse and another reason to kick the can down the road and is now going to insist on waiting another few months, however long it takes, until this property is officially registered in the land registry. So that's on the, on the private level of the real estate dispute. On, on, the, on the larger level, as I say, the, the battle for sovereignty continues in many areas, Jonathan. Uh, Shimon Atzadik and Nachalat Shimon is one of them. We try, as you know, we're trying to 
uh, promote the establishment of a large Jewish neighborhood in the north of Jerusalem in Atarot, 9,000 units, which would be a fantastic buffer between Ramallah and Jerusalem and help solve many demographic challenges that are facing the city of Jerusalem today. I'm not sure if your viewers know, but today 40% of all the residents of Jerusalem are Arab. Uh, the Jewish majority is shrinking. And in another few years, if the government doesn't do anything about it, we could find ourselves with an Arab mayor democratically elected. And so what we're trying to do is to uh, uh, promote policy that will uh, greatly increase the Jewish demographics of Jerusalem, like, for example, building a large Jewish neighborhood in the north of the city. So these are some of the challenges and issues that are facing us. Certainly the security threats continue uh, to plague us on a daily basis. We see almost every day a new attempt at a terror attack, uh, a new attempt at uh, stabbing, shooting somebody. And, and this is ongoing, unfortunately. And we hope that the government of Israel will, will be much more stricter and much, much more forceful in using the tools at their disposal, at their disposal to, uh, to uh, stop and contain and destroy all these terrorist elements. Hmm. These are important questions. Uh, now, uh, you, you've, you've given us a little bit sort of the big picture as well as gotten us into some of the details. But if you had one thing to say to, you know, someone who you sort of, uh, even if they're, they're sort of vaguely sympathetic to Israel, um, explain to them sort of like, uh, you know, on one foot, why should a seemingly arcane question of who owns a few houses in Jerusalem matter so much? And, um, you know, if this is, you know, if, if returning these homes to their Jewish owners is permanently stalled, what would you think that that says about the ability of Israel to persuade anyone that uh, the recognition of uh, Jerusalem as the country's capital of the United States can't be reversed? Um, first of all, you know, uh, John Kerry said that if uh, Trump moves the uh, American embassy to Jerusalem, Third World War will break out. And fortunately, that did not happen. And that was a, a prophet of doom that was not realized. And but there is, as I mentioned, a battle for sovereignty over Jerusalem. And every victory that we make in real estate and in claiming more and more areas of strategic parts of Jerusalem. And as I mentioned, the Shimon Atadik neighborhood is an extremely strategic part of Jerusalem both historical area where Simon the Just is buried, a holy site, and also one in the seam between East and West Jerusalem, merely 300 meters from the huge neighborhood of Meir Sharim and the Mir Yeshiva. And so it's a very strategic area. And if we lose the legal and real estate battles that are carrying out in this area, it will strengthen the extremist jihadic uh, uh, Islamic ele elements to continue with their, their uh, campaign of war and terror and violence against the Jews. So it's not just a real estate dispute. It's a dispute for, for the ownership and the sovereignty over Jerusalem. And ultimately, if we prevail, that will bring peace because it will suppress and, and cut off these extremist elements. But if we lose and we give in, it will embolden them and have dire consequences both for Jerusalem and for the Western world. Yeah, I think that's very true. I think we saw last May the consequences of a disinformation campaign 
um, about this specific issue um, that led to terrorism, uh, anti-Semitism elsewhere. Um, and I think um, complacency on this issue is costing um, Israel um, more than I think um, it's many of its supporters understand. Chaim, I want to thank you so much for coming on and giving us the benefit of your experience, your insights, and your knowledge of this issue. We also want to thank our audience. Whether you're listening to us on Spotify or any of the other podcast platforms or watching us on Facebook, the JNS YouTube channel, or on JBS TV, please like and or subscribe to Top Story and give us good reviews. Please let us know where you listen or watch the show and what you think about it. We're going to be taking a week off for Passover, but we'll see you again in two weeks. And until then, remember, keep reading and thinking for yourself. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.